Coming up on Studios America, it's Earth Day. Bjorn Lomborg joins us to talk about Joe Biden's climate summit. Brett Favre is going to get canceled. And is Planned Parenthood aborting their founder? Let's find out and do Margaret Sanger. Stu does America. Over the weekend, we had a splashy new announcement from Planned Parenthood, an organization specifically designed to plan the opposite of parenthood. Fun fact. It was made in the form of an op-ed in the New York Times entitled, I'm the head of Planned Parenthood. We're done making excuses for our founder. We must reckon with Margaret Sanger's association with white supremacists and eugenics. Do you? Do you need to reckon with it? It's so nice of you to finally notice. Yes, Margaret Sanger was truly awful. She proposed a law, for example, that said, among other things, quote, no woman shall have the legal right to bear a child and no man shall have the right to become a father without a permit for parenthood and that no permit for parenthood shall be valid for more than one birth. Wow, there's some government control for you. For those of you who refer to yourselves as the middle or the youngest child, congratulations, you avoided Margaret Sanger's vision of the world and were actually born. And that's, a, you know, a bit unfair, sure. She didn't mind babies being born all the time as long as it was the right kind of baby. That sucks for you if you were one of the, quote, feeble-minded persons, habitual uh, congenital criminals, those afflicted with inheritable disease, and others found biologically unfit by authorities. Those people should be sterilized or, in cases of doubt, should be, put, should be so isolated as to prevent the perpetuation of their afflictions by breeding. <laughs> and, of course, she was very, very pro-choice, as you might think noting that the undesirables, quote, would have the choice of segregation or sterilization. See? <laughs> choice. Segregation on one hand, sterilization on the other. Why do you hate choice so much? So who are the undesirables? Morons, mental defectives, epileptics. Wow. Illiterates, paupers, unemployables, criminals, prostitutes and dope fiends but don't worry it's not a sad life those undesirables get to quote segregate on farms and open spaces as long as necessary for the strengthening and development of moral conduct oh it's like uh what you do to an aging dog you know let them go out in the farm and run out in open spaces and who knows they might just strengthen their moral conduct enough that they're no longer epileptic or something and then they can come back you know maybe on alternative weekends or something i don't know maybe or they're gonna like the old dog there's an old yeller outcome we don't want to talk about sanger had monstrous views of the family she bluntly defined birth control, a term she coined as the process of weeding out the unfit aimed at a creation of a superman. She often opined that the most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. And that all our problems are the result of overbreeding among the working class. What a liberal hero she was. But it's important to note as crazy as Margaret Sanger was in her time, 
she was actually far less extreme than today's Planned Parenthood. In her autobiography, she writes about a pamphlet that she had printed up in the early days of Planned Parenthood, where she basically admits that, yeah, abortion is killing. Quote, mothers, can you afford to have a large family? Do you want any more children? If not, why do you have them? Do not kill, do not take life, but prevent. Safe, harmless information can be obtained uh, of trained nurses at the address. Tell your friends and neighbors. All mothers are welcome. A registration fee of 10 cents entitles any mother to this information. I like how Margaret Sanger actually charged 10 cents for the info. Now, you know, look, ladies got to pay their bills, you know. It's amazing to think about it today. But Margaret Sanger, at least for a time, really did seem to think abortion was a terrible crime. She talked about it in a letter she received from a woman struggling in poverty, writing, quote, The second woman tells of her attempts to bring on a miscarriage and of her sickly brood of six. In many cases such as this, the woman, in desperation, goes to an abortionist and commits that crime which all women in their souls rebel against. How much better is it to tell mothers how to prevent in order that they will not have to destroy she calls abortion that crime which all women in their souls rebel against. No wonder they're distancing themselves from her. But it's been a part of the long-standing tradition of Planned Parenthood and the left to celebrate Margaret Sanger and her legacy. They even named their most prominent award after her and in 2009 gave it to Hillary Clinton. Upon receiving the award, Hillary said, it was a great privilege when I was told that I would receive this award. It is a part of a movement which is about economic and political process for all women and girls. It's about making sure that every woman and girl everywhere has the opportunity she deserves to fulfill her potential, the potential as a mother, worker, and human being. The overarching mission of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, the cause of reproductive freedom that you continue to advance today, is as relevant in our world now as it was a hundred years ago, so I thank you. Hmm. Interesting how she would cite the ideas of a hundred years ago when eugenics was really, really in effect. But eventually Hillary was asked about most of Sanger's horribly racist and awful comments, and she gave a version of the prototypical answer that the left has given for years. I admire Margaret Sanger being a pioneer in trying to empower women to have some control over their bodies, and I deplore statements that you have referenced, end quote. This is the change Planned Parenthood is signaling in the op-ed. They're abandoning the explicit defense of her ties to racist and eugenicist ideas. As recently as 2016, Planned Parenthood was still making eugenics seem pretty much okay, for its time at least, writing that Sanger, quote, clearly identified with the broader issues of health and fitness that concerned the early 20th century eugenics movement, which was enormously popular and well-respected by doctors, physicians, political leaders, and the educators during the 1920s and 30s. Well, I guess I'm happy they won't be saying stuff like that anymore. That's a positive step, I suppose. But this isn't exactly what we were asking for. When we point out the racist origins of abortion, we don't do it so you'll cancel Margaret Sanger. We want you to cancel the abortions you have scheduled. Racism in 1921 is far lower on my priority scale than stopping a beating heart in 2021. 
I'd much rather you embrace the language of eugenics from 1921 than continue to practice it a century later. But maybe that's just me. In the op-ed, Planned Parenthood notes that they have, quote, failed to own the impact of our founders' actions. We have defended Sanger as a protector of bodily autonomy and self-determination while excusing her association with white supremacist groups and eugenics as an unfortunate product of her time. That was their justification for whitewashing Sanger and her speech to the Ku Klux Klan, for example. Quote, reassessing Sanger's history doesn't negate her feminist fight, but it does tarnish it. In the name of political expedience, of course, it had nothing to do with her racism, it was just political expedience. She chose to engage white supremacists to further her cause. In doing that, she devalued and dehumanized people of color. And on and on and on it goes. Look, it's important that the truth about Sanger is out there and that Planned Parenthood has finally been forced to admit it. But there's something else at work here. There's this debate among conservatives about how to react to the mega woke insane asylum the world is turning into. It's an important conversation with a lot of nuance and twists and turns. But bluntly, to summarize it, it's basically, do we use the left's tactics against them? Sure, we think cancel culture is a bad thing, but they came up with those rules. So we need to hold them, them to the standards that they created. So when they come for one of our cherished figures, like George Washington, we come for one of theirs, like Margaret Sanger, for example. Obviously, I'm not <laughs> comparing the two. One is one of the greatest people who's ever lived on the earth, and the other was a racist whose work led to millions of people ending up dead. But Margaret Sanger was legitimately beloved by the left. They didn't want to reckon with her history. They wanted to whitewash all of her negatives and hold her up as a hero to all. And over a long period of time, largely starting with conservatives, Sanger's horrible warts were exposed to the public. Eventually, people like Hillary Clinton were forced to answer for them and make up excuses and spin. We started doing shows about Margaret Sanger a decade ago or more. And if you would have told me early on that eventually you'd have Planned Parenthood admitting Margaret Sanger was basically a racist in the pages of the New York Times, I would have been thrilled with that outcome. My point is, this is as good as it gets. Turning Planned Parenthood against Margaret frigging Sanger? It's the highest peak of an impossible-to-climb mountain. And that's why I don't think this approach is worth it. If you read the op-ed carefully, you see what the actual response from the left is when they are forced to change. Yes, Planned Parenthood is taking responsibility for the problematic nature of their founder. And here's why, quote, by privileging whiteness, we contributed to America harming black women and other women of color. And when we focus too narrowly on women's health, we have excluded trans and non-binary people. I think women's health would also exclude men, but that's a totally different story. You see, it's not that their founded, founder existed on an ideology of racism and death. It's that focusing on women's health excluded trans and non-binary people from all of the benefits of their available baby deletion services. They just moved further to the crazy extreme. They don't care if you try to cancel them. This is as close to a win as we're ever going to get in this world. And it's not a win at all. As you know, I'm not a boycott guy. But part of why I don't like boycotts is that they allow conservatives to live in this fantasy world where we can convince ourselves if we just band together and do the things that liberals always do, 
we can turn these things around. If enough of us just stop drinking Coke, we, Coke will turn from their mega woke ways and the culture will change. But this is a fantasy. Gina Carano, who was one of the most popular characters on one of the most popular series in America, a Star Wars series, and she was fired by Disney over nothing. A ton of conservatives stood up and canceled their subscriptions, canceled Disney trended everywhere. To what end? She's still fired. They didn't even bother to address that the other star of the series did the exact same thing, except on the liberal side. They didn't even respond. And in fairness to Disney, would you? If people started boycotting me because I was too pro-life, do you think I'm going to become pro-choice? No. If anything, I'm going to become more pro-life, which may not be possible. You wouldn't change your mind over a boycott, and I promise you that these multi-billion dollar corporations won't change their mind either. They may occasionally do what Planned Parenthood has done here, but that victory is empty. And in some ways, it's worse than empty because now we've taken a set of rules and standards that we have already admitted are ridiculous, and now we've codified them. It's now basically the law of the land because both sides are embracing it. The problem is, the left would rather have this standard than the people we might cancel. They don't care if what they see as unfair cancellations happen to their people. They just want this stuff to be normalized, and it's happening. I understand these temptations, but at the end of the day, among all of the other problems with them, they just don't work. We're never going to win by outlefting the left. Our ideas are better. Let's go the other way. All right, you want to buy? You want to sell a home? In these times, it can be really challenging. That's why you need a real estate agent who's going to come in and take charge. If you need the house painted, here's who you can need to talk to. Need to replace the stairs? We've got a guy. I'm in the middle of selling a house right now, and we got an estimate on painting that was astronomical. What do I do? You got to have a real estate agent you can trust who can recommend the right person for that job. Real estate agents I trust is Glenn's company, so you can be rest assured, of course, that you're going to be in the hands of the most capable people in the industry because they put so much work into this. They screen the agents to make sure they are the best in your area. I don't know. You're going to go interview a bunch of real estate agents yourself. I know I'm not going to do that. I'm way too lazy. But if I can go to realestateagentsitrust.com and get the information there, I'm willing to do that much work. It's a free service to you. Why not give it a shot? Realestateagentsitrust.com. It's realestateagentsitrust.com. Well, happy Earth Day, everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful Earth Day wherever you might be. Uh, President Biden this week is going to slash greenhouse gas emissions. At least he's going to promise to do that. At least in half by the end of the decade, according to two people briefed on the plan as part of an aggressive push to combat climate change at home and persuade other major economies around the world to follow suit. This move comes as Biden convenes a virtual summit of more than three dozen world leaders Thursday. It's a virtual summit. I mean, I assume that's COVID related. I don't know why all climate summits wouldn't be virtual if it's such a massive 
problem with emissions, but we're going to go and try to investigate and learn and understand all of these issues. I'm welcoming back to the program Bjorn Lomborg. He is the author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Uh, he's also the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center. Uh, Bjorn, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Hey, Steve, it's great to be back. Before we start, I want to tell everyone, if you care at all about this stuff, it's Earth Day. If you care at all about this stuff, you must own False Alarm. It is a fantastic book, and it goes through every single claim you ever hear in the media and gives you the details. So you actually can understand where they started from and what they're trying to do with them and what the truth is. And I really appreciate you putting all the time into the book. Thank you. I'm very happy for that little capsulate review. It's, it's my Amazon review. Five stars uh, yes, on, on Amazon from Stu. Um, let's start with this uh, this this consensus, um, or excuse me, the, uh, the, uh, the the conference they're doing virtually. Thankfully, um, it, they want to cut emissions by 50 percent in only a few years. Uh, is that even forget if it's a good idea, but is it even possible? And how would you do it? So, Stu, uh, almost everything is possible if you're just willing to pay enough. Right. Uh, and so, yes, you can go 50 uh, percent reduction. It's twice as much as what Obama has promised, uh, but you can definitely do it. But it will necessitate large changes. So you'll need to go to about 50% uh, renewables. You'll need to get everyone to switch over uh, to electric cars. Uh, you'll need to weatherize houses. You'll need to cut down on, on a lot of, of emission-related stuff. And remember, the reason why this is a problem is because energy is the growth engine of our economy, and not just of the US, but around the world. Uh, remember 200 years ago, uh, nobody had anything but their own muscle power and some wood and some draft animals. The reason why we got rich was that we had lots and lots of power. And now we're essentially saying, yeah, sure, but you can't get that from fossil fuels. You will have to pay much more in order to get that from renewables or not use it at all. This is not going to take us to the poorhouse, but it is going to be costly. But what I really think is surprising is that you know, Biden spends a lot of time telling us, oh, he's going to cut up to 52 percent. But he doesn't tell you how much will that actually achieve. Well, run it through the U.N. climate panels model and you find that this will reduce temperatures by the end of the century. So his additional promise above what Obama promised will cut temperatures by 0 0.08 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's a little good. It's also a lot of money to spend for fairly little and again, we've got to ask, could we have done that better? And the answer is yes. Yeah, and one of the things you, you talk about, I think, in a really smart way in the book, is, is the, the, the way to look at this problem and how to handle it. You know, uh, there's a lot of uh, incentives for politicians to have big press conferences in front of solar panels that are available today. And that technology has really improved over the past 30 years. But instead of spending these incremental am amounts, on solar panels as they develop through time. If we were doing more to do research on uh, uh, technologies that may become available in the future, we could solve this problem a, a lot more quickly uh, and, and, more, and more realistically uh, over the long term. Can you kind of walk yes. us through how that works? And cheaper, and we could get everybody else on board. Remember, most rich, well-meaning Americans are willing to pay a couple hundred dollars to tackle climate change. Biden is suggesting let's spend, you know, $1,500 per person. Mm. That's by itself unlikely to work out in the long run. You can do that for a couple of years. You 
probably can't do it for 10 years. You certainly can't do it for 80 years as we need throughout the 21st century. But remember, this is only rich, well-meaning Americans. You can probably also get rich, well-meaning Europeans and some other rich people around the world, but that's still a fairly small part of the planet. It's 1.5 billion people. The rest of the planet is going to emit about three quarters of all greenhouse gas emissions in the 21st century. Why? Because they're not rich, but they would like to be rich. So China, India, all the African nations, Latin America, they're not all that interested in saying, sure, let's uh, have less growth, let's be less rich. They're unlikely to say, yay, cool, let's spend $1,500 more per person per year. For many of these nations, of course, it's money they don't even have. So the reality here is, if you try to solve global warming the way we've tried the last 30 years, by making these grand promises, as you, as you mentioned, then not keeping them, with technology that is still not efficient, we're likely to keep failing. We've certainly done that for the last 30 years. Mm. If we focused instead on innovating cheap green new energy. So fundamentally, that could be solar and wind. As you mentioned, they've come down dramatically, but they're still not efficient enough because basically, and this is not entirely true, but it's roughly right, you still need to hook up a lot of batteries for when the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing. Mm -hmm. But it could also be fourth generation nuclear. It could be fusion, the thing that you know all science fiction novels have. It could be carbon capture. It could be all these other great ideas. Most of them, well, all of them are uncompetitive right now, but American ingenuity could make them cheaper than fossil fuels. And imagine what would happen if you could innovate just one energy source that was cheaper than fossil fuels. You wouldn't need the Biden climate summit. You wouldn't need to twist the arms of Indian leaders or uh, uh, Chinese leaders and ask them, oh, could you please cut a little more, promise to cut a little more. They would simply switch because that energy source would be cheaper. So again, we don't solve problems by telling people, I'm sorry, could you have it a little worse and continue to be a little worse off for the next 80 years? That never works. What you do, do uh, what does work is telling people, here's a great new in in invention that'll actually make your life better, that'll be cheaper, and oh, not emit CO2. I think we've had a real world example of this happening um, recently here in the United States over the past, like say 15, 20 years, where we had this conversation about incandescent light bulbs. And at the time, the, there was a big government push to convert everyone over to fluorescent bulbs because they would save energy, they would be better for the climate, and they started phasing out incandescent bulbs. Well, just a couple of years down the line, were LED bulbs, which were much, much better, but so many places locked themselves in and spent money on the fluorescent bulbs as this midpoint by force when the market was there to provide a much better solution than either one of them just a couple of years later. I feel like, you know, we're, I, I feel like as a, I'm a conservative here in the United States and we're kind of told all the time that we're anti-science, but like not believing that these innovations are around the corner to me is really the anti-science view. Yes, and it's also a really bad way to solve the problem if you really care about it. I, I'm so surprised that John Kerry and many other people who allegedly really, really worry about climate uh, uh, change, they come out and say, you know, I worry so much that I'm gonna recommend the same 
kind of policies that have failed for the last 30 years. Mm. If you really worry about climate, wouldn't you want to focus on something that's actually worked? And so again, let's make sure that we don't mandate people to do stuff they don't want. Most people didn't want the compact fluorescent light bulbs. They were cheaper uh, when they ran, they were much more costly, and they often gave very bad lighting. The LEDs, as you point out, everyone buys them because they're cheap, they, they actually give really great light, and they save you a bucket load of money in the long run. That's the way to solve the problem. Another way, perhaps more clear, is if you if you take Los Angeles back in the 1950s, it was a terribly polluted place, mostly because of of cars, uh, and and you know the standard sort of John Kerry approach to solving this problem would be to go to everyone in Los Angeles and say, I'm sorry, could you just uh, you know bike instead or run or walk or something? And of course, that's not going to work. Mm. What did work? was the innovation of the catalytic converter in 1974. Yeah, it costs some money. You put it on your, uh, uh, your exhaust pipe and you're done. You can drive much longer and pollute a lot less. That's the way you solve problems. And of course, that's why Los Angeles is today a much, much cleaner place. Look, it doesn't solve everything, but it solved a big problem without telling people, could you do with less? Mm. And that's, I think, fundamentally what you do over and over again when looking at these things is actually applying a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, so often, I feel like there's just a benefit analysis. Like, we say we should do these things because it will improve X, Y, and Z in the future. But the cost is an incredible uh, part of that. And it's not just money, it's opportunity cost. You know, I mean, yeah. putting in old solar panels that are inefficient locks you in, you spend money that you could have spent uh, furthering the technology and making those panels better in the future. It, I, it's, it's just difficult to see how politicians are going to come around to, to this sort of thinking because it might solve the problem, but in reality, it doesn't do any good for their, their careers right at this moment. And, and you're right that it is harder to get politicians to do this, but I think both Biden is actually, and to his credit, is saying that this is also what he wants. Of course, he has sort of, we should do everything. So right. even the smart stuff is on, on his list. Uh, but also a lot of conservatives are saying we should be spending this. And of course, the benefit to politicians is to say, if we spend money smartly on innovation, that means we don't spend, you know, we, we'll spend maybe $30 billion instead of $300 billion or instead of, you know, a half a trillion dollars. So we can save a lot of money that we can spend on all these other things that we would like to do, like cut people's taxes or give them better opportunity or better infrastructure and all these other things. So I think there is a real upside to say, look, let's try to make climate change not a trillion dollar problem, which will inevitably mean that uh, that voters are eventually going to be turned off and just unelect those uh, those politicians who keep giving them trillion dollar bills uh, uh, or pay. Bills has a double meaning in American, right? Uh, but you have to pay all this money. Whereas the politicians who say, I'm going to make it into a $30 billion problem, I'm going to spend it smartly, and then I'm going to leave you with all these other benefits uh, that we can either spend uh, uh, publicly or just give you back in your taxes, that would be a winner, I would imagine. Mm. One of the big complaints you hear from, uh, from people who are alarmist on this is it's going to cost us gigantic amounts of money if we don't fix this problem. And you talk about it. I mean, it is a lot of money. It's a couple percent of GDP, which adds up to an awful lot of money. Money. But it, it seems like, again, like that is only part of the package. It doesn't take into account the good things that will happen over that term. Can you walk people through that? 
Yeah, so so fundamentally, it is correct. Global warming is a problem. Uh, so the world's only climate economist to get the Nobel Prize in climate economics, uh, William Nordhaus, has tried to, and he's built a whole uh, literature together with uh, dozens of other researchers, and this is what the UN Climate Panel tells us in their latest report. The likely outcome is that if we do nothing about climate, it'll probably cost somewhere between 3 and 4% of global GDP by the end of the century. That's a not trivial cost. Remember, by then, the UN estimate will be about 450% as rich as what we are today. So instead of being 450% as rich, we'll be 436% as rich. Mm. That tells us two things. First of all, it's still going to be a much, much better world, but it could have been an even better world. That sort of gives, uh, you know, that puts in perspective when people tell you this is an existential crisis. No, it's not. It's a problem. It's not the end of the world. The second part of this, of course, is to recognize if you spend, say, one or two percent of GDP to solve the whole problem, you made a good deal. You spend a couple of percent you save 4%. That's great. But unfortunately, that's not typically what people are suggesting. They're rather saying, let's spend 5 10% to solve a small part of the problem. And that's a little bit like you know, curing your wrist ache by cutting off your arm. That is a bad deal. So again, we need to remember, we both have to pay climate damages, but we also have to pay climate policy damages. So we should make sure that the sum of those two is the smallest we can do. And that's, of course, what he got the Nobel Prize for. And there's a very smart answer for that. You should cut some, but not too much. And unfortunately, most of the rich world is talking about cutting way too much. Yeah, and this is, I know, a lot of the work you do at the Copenhagen Consensus Center as well. Um, I want to hit one more thing, though, because this is Earth Day. This is a global, a global thing. Um, we in the United States, uh, the debate is always seemingly about the same thing. People who don't, you know, you either care about money and that's all you care about and you're a conservative and you don't care about the earth. Or on the other side, you uh, want to cut emissions because you care and you actually care about the planet. However, globally, the, the issue is is different than that. And, and you point this out in the book. You talk about how when we are giving, let's say, aid to a poorer country, um, we oftentimes attach these sort of green policies to, as a condition of getting that money. And you call it a, a, a different kind of imperialism, which I thought was a really interesting way of thinking about this. These policies harm these countries and they're completely unfair to them. Well, yes, they they help them very little. So, look, when people try to do good, they end up probably doing a little good. But if you could have done a lot more good, have you really done well, right. so you know, for instance, for, for most of the developing countries, for most of the world's poor, they have much bigger environmental problems. So the, by far the biggest environmental problem is indoor and outdoor air pollution. Uh, and then it's water and sanitation, it's uh, radon, and yes, it's also global warming, but very, very far down the list. So again, if you want it to help them with environmental issues, you should help them with indoor and outdoor air pollution. Indoor is by far the most e effective and cheapest way to help them, and it's something that most people just even don't think about. It's the fact that almost 3 billion people cook and keep warm with dirty fuels like dung, cardboard, and wood. They cook inside, they, keep the, uh, they heat their huts uh, with, uh, with dung, and not surprisingly, it's about 10 times as polluted as Beijing is when it's worst in their outdoor air pollution. So this means that you know, 3 billion people smoke what is the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes every day. Clearly, 
That is something we should do something about. And that's mostly about lifting these people out of poverty. But also remember, environment is only one of the many problems that poor people have. They care about the fact that their kids die from easily curable infectious diseases. They don't have enough food for their kids. They don't get a good education. There are all these other things that they care about that we can also help with. So, you know, for instance, uh, immunizing their kids. It's about making sure that their kids get good food. Uh, that'll also help them in school. There are many, many other ways where you can spend a dollar and do so much more good. And that's why I'm a little surprised when people say, which they will say about Earth Day and about global warming, this is about helping the world's poor. That somehow we've gotten it into our mind to say the way to help the world's poor is by me not driving to work tomorrow. What? No, <laughs> the way to help the world's poor is by getting them immunization, by getting them food, by getting them access to our market so that they can produce, so they can get people out of poverty. And yes, we should also fix climate change, but it's pretty far down the list. And we should do so smartly by innovating so that they also get the benefit of great access to cheap and abundant energy but eventually without the CO2. Mm, there we go. Bjorn Lomborg, he's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, author of a great book, False Alarm, How to Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Uh, happy Earth Day, Bjorn. Thanks so much for doing the program. Likewise, too. All right, back in a second. The killing of 16-year-old Michaela Bryant by the Columbus police is tragic. She was a child. Sure. We're thinking of her friends and family and the communities that are hurting and grieving her loss. Okay. We know that police violence disproportionately impacts uh, black and Latino okay. people and communities and that black women and girls, like black men and boys, hmm. experience higher rates of police violence. We also know that there are particular right. vulnerabilities that children in foster care, care like Micaiah, face. And her right. death came, as you noted, just as America was hopeful of a step forward after the traumatic and exhausting trial of Derek Chauvin and the verdict that was reached. So our focus is on um, mm -hmm. working to address systemic racism and implicit, implicit bias head on, and of course, to Wait, passing laws and legislation that will put much needed reforms into place at police departments around the country. I mean, look, this is normal boilerplate left wing stuff. But what's frustrating about it is it's blatantly obvious this shooting had nothing to do with any of those things. It, the person she was trying to stab was black. Ta-da. It's the whole case, isn't it? I mean, that's the it's all you need. There's a lot more to that case than that. But I mean, if he was a racist, why would he be protecting a black life? It makes no sense whatsoever. And obviously it was a completely justified shooting. Uh, they just didn't address that. They didn't address. I mean, how do you how do you talk about this without saying, look, don't stab people. I don't like what I don't know. Is this too little to ask? I mean, it's too much to ask, I guess, of the American people that you don't stab people all the time. I, don't stab people. Knives are for cutting food, not for cutting people. Keep that little safety tip in mind and you're likely not to get shot. Now, there have been cases, of course, where this has gone awry in a bad way, but it is it's just impossible to understand if you why, if you want to be taken seriously, you don't just come out and say, look, George Floyd was a disgrace, if that's what you believe. However, this one, obviously, she was about to stab someone. So we understand that these things do happen. We wish they could have 
de-escalated it or we wish he would have had magic powers like the force to just draw the knife to his hand or whatever whatever you're expecting him to do in that situation other than shooting but it's completely justified to do what he did now look they're like well, what about a taser what about not really a realistic solution for multitude of reasons. Uh, what about uh, shooting her in the leg? There's all these little things that you can try to do. Uh, of course, there are many reasons why police are not trained to do those things. Um, you don't want you don't want to aim at a small target so that if you miss, the person does get stabbed. Then you wind up shooting them anyway, and spray bullets are going around uh, the area. That's not a good thing either. The bottom line was, you you would go a much further to gain credibility if you just admit something like this was blatantly justified. Uh, and then you have a much better argument when there's one that isn't justified or is questionable. They just will not do that in the media. It just cannot happen, apparently. Brett Favre is in a little bit of trouble as well. He's on the virtue, uh, the, the, he's on the virtue signals, uh, signalers radar right now because uh, it's time to cancel Brett Favre. Why? This is what he said. I find it hard to believe, and I'm not defending Derek Chauvin in any way, I find it hard to believe, first of all, that he intentionally meant to kill George Floyd. That being said, his actions were uncalled for. I don't care what color the person is on the street. I don't know what led to that video, what we saw where his knee was under his neck, but the man had thrown in the towel. Now, this might seem controversial to some, and Favre is getting just dragged for it. But step back for a second and realize that the most serious charge Derek Chauvin was charged with was something called second-degree unintentional murder. They didn't even try to get him unintentional murder. If he meant to kill the guy, uh, George Floyd, then it wouldn't have been unintentional murder as the most serious charge. The jury agreed with Brett Favre. It was unintentional. That doesn't mean it was okay. It doesn't mean he handled the situation well. It doesn't even mean he's not a racist. All it means is he didn't mean to kill him. He may have meant to hurt him, which was also something he was basically uh, convicted of because he was convicted of an assault as well uh, as an underlying part of the murder charge. But the bottom line here is that Brett Favre expressed what the jury expressed. I think he did a bad thing, but I don't think he meant to kill uh, George Floyd. That was what the charges reflected and how that's controversial. I don't know because we're in this insane world. The media is completely nuts. Uh, we are in a world where we can't recognize what the truth is. You know, uh, for some reason, even though twice as many white people get killed by cops every year than black people, we never hear about any of those people. Do I want to separate people based on the color of their skin? The answer to that is no. I, I don't think that's a, uh, it's not an argument to be like, I want to hear more about white people who are unfairly treated. I mean, look, you know, a person being uh, uh, mistreated by the police is a story. I would say it's a local news story. I don't think it's something that really we should be talking about. The only reason we're talking about even George Floyd uh, is because half the country burned down because of the case. Uh, that's why. And now that's being threatened again here. But I want you to look back at a, at a clip from uh, Family Guy. This is 2015. And if this does not describe exactly what is going on with the media and the way they handle these situations, uh, I don't know what does. Watch. Wait a minute. Peter didn't shoot my son. I did. <gasps> Peter was just taking the blame for me. He's a good friend. Uh, Mr. Brown, what exactly are you saying? I'm saying that I, Cleveland Brown, a black man, shot Cleveland Brown Jr., another black man. 
Wait, wh where did everybody go? You want to make the media go away? Just mention black-on-black -black crime. Mm-hmm, yes. Uh, you know, Family Guy's, look, they do lots of things ha hammering conservatives as well, but the, the, if you watch Family Guy enough, you see they take all sorts of shots at crazy liberal logic as well. Uh, anyway, that's, it's true. The reason why you hear and why you can say their name and go through that list of names, of, of familiar names that you know, is because the media just decides that's the narrative they want to promote. That's not the recipe for a healthy media ecosphere and not the recipe for a healthy civilization, frankly. Back in a second. Thank you so much for helping us do America. We offer the show completely free, of course, because you're important to us and because I want you to follow me on Instagram. Head to my page at Stu Does America. Click the follow button. We also have a link in our bio that takes you all of our episodes and social platforms, plus exclusive content and much, much more. And please also consider a subscription to Blaze TV to help you know keep this stupid show on the air. Head to blazetv.com slash Stu and enter the promo code Stu because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. Look, it's Earth Day. What better way to celebrate Earth Day than to join this stupid show in our wonderful mission to destroy the Earth? I want to give you this. This is from, uh, this is an amazing one. Look, Earth Day is getting close. You know, all these companies want to participate in Earth Day. Logan Airport wants to show how green they are. So they tweeted this. For those traveling, parking at the airport brings you closer to your terminal and reduces the impact on the environment. And then they hashtagged Earth Day. Now, I don't know exactly how that would work. So you're telling me a person taking a flight uh, and need, they need to get to the airport. So they drive all the way to the airport instead of driving closer to their home and taking public transport or just taking a train or something to the airport, which still would be an environmental cost. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Everyone kind of called them out on it. Uh, they said uh, they have a positive uh, record when it comes to sustainability and redu reducing our environmental impact. No airport has that. Europe, you take metal tubes and fill them with fuel and then s sail them in the air at 600 miles an hour. There's nothing environmental about it. I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. It would be a much worse place if you didn't do it, but there's nothing, nothing that's going to please the Sierra Foundation uh, out of no airport is like, you know, a few years ago, uh, a shampoo brand did this. They're like, they are, we are so green. We're Garnier Fructis. We're so green. It's like, well, you could say you're green all you want, but the most green way to make Garnier Fructis is to not make Garnier Fructis. No one needs their hair to smell like aloe. Just move on with your life. Back in a second. So a $160,000 Big Bird costume has been stolen from the Adelaide Circus uh, in Australia. Uh, first of all, I don't know how a Big Bird costume could cost $160,000, but it was stolen. And then it was suddenly brought back with a note. Here's the note in full. It says, uh, sorry, we, are, uh, we had no idea what we were doing or what our actions would cause. We were just having a rough time and we were trying to cheer ourselves up. We had a, a great time with Mr. Bird. He's a great guy and no harm came to our friend. Sorry to be such a big burden, B-I-R-D-E-N. 
the big bird bandits. Uh, well, it's good. It's good to hear. I'm glad that is sorted out. Um, I will say, if you want to steal valuable merchandise, you should probably be stealing Nancy Pelosi sucks pens. I mean, they're much more valuable than $160,000 a piece. So we're talking about a collector's item here. Go to nancypelosisuckspen.com. NancyPelosiSucksPen.com because Nancy Pelosi sucks.